Hey y'all, you know we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com slash femfreak. Also fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give please head over to patreon.com slash femfreak. I really like that it's not, we're going to deal with trauma. (laughs) The MCU has just been aggressively like, we're going to talk about trauma all the time, but not really talk about trauma in any real way or deal with it in any real way. Mm -hmm. It's felt really surface and just bullshit to me. And so I like that this wasn't that. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada. And today we're kicking off a mini season of pop culture conversation goodness. We've got a handful of current or very recent releases that we're super excited to watch and talk about. And one cult classic from the 90s, the early 90s, that we can't believe neither of us has ever seen before. So you better stay tuned for that one. What could it be? We watched the latest in the Marvel Cinematic Universe's foray into television, She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Created by Jessica Gao and starring Tatiana Maslany, the series brings to the screen a character introduced to comics in 1980, lawyer Jennifer Walters. After an emergency blood transfusion from her cousin Bruce Banner, she transforms, developing Hulk-like superpowers similar to his. The show retains a unique characterization from the comic, Walter's metafictional awareness and propensity to break the fourth wall. Some review bombers, who seem not to be in on the joke of life itself, have criticized the series' quote-unquote wokeness, but it has had an overall positive critical response, despite mixed reactions to its visual effects. We will be discussing all nine episodes of the show's first season, so come back to this episode and listen later if you haven't yet watched it and you're worried about spoilers. Also, the series She-Hulk contains depictions of online harassment, violence, and sexual assault, so please listen to our conversation ahead with caution. More and more eccentric superhumans are coming out of the woodwork. (laughs) We are going to launch a division for them, and I want the She-Hulk to be the face of it. Jennifer Waters. Namaste. I have a serious conflict of interest. This man tried to kill my cousin, Bruce. Yeah, that's quite all right. Oh. People only care because I'm representing Emil Blonsky. I think they care because they're like, hey, that girl's green. Jen, do your thing. God, I really like this outfit. Joining us to discuss this film is science and culture writer Annalie Newitz. They are the author of nonfiction books, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and Adapt and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Their novels include The Future of Another Timeline, the Lambda Literary Award-winning Autonomous, and The Terraformers, coming in January 2023. In the past, Annalie founded io9 and served as editor-in-chief of Gizmodo, and their journalism can be found in the New York Times and a monthly column for New Scientist, among others. They are the co-host of the Hugo Award 
award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct, one of my favorite podcasts. Welcome back, Annalie. Thanks for having me back onto one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, you have to say that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's actually true, though. (laughs) Yep. Yep. This is just how it goes. We're just like, yeah, I have to to say you're the best. So then you're like, "Uh uh-oh. It's great. This is how this life works. But but it is objectively true that this is one of the best podcasts. Well, and if your brand is that your opinions are correct, then it's incontrovertible fact. Exactly. At this point. How did that name happen? I mean, just through the magic of always having the right opinions, you know? <laughs> You're like, our title is just factual and we didn't need it's, to be creative yeah, at all. Our title is... <laughs> Yeah, it's just recursive, you know? I'm amazed that it wasn't (laughs) taken by a Hulk King-like figure on the internet. Yeah, it is really strange. We were very psyched when we realized that. So, yeah. Um, You know, I think it's just because those those, uh, Hulk King-like figures already feel that it's given that they're correct. And also that they're not stating opinions. They're stating facts. It's true. It's true. When I first uh, started doing uh, Feminist Frequency like the video series, people would get really mad at me because I wouldn't say, in my opinion, or I think I would just like say the thing. And I was like, nobody gets mad at like, like pundits on news, like news programs saying, talking like that. Like, why the fuck am I getting shit for it? And then I was like, oh, patriarchy, (laughs) you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. And then I was like, oh, patriarchy is maybe a (laughs) t-shirt. Exactly. (laughs) Patriarchy again. Damn it. We're still dealing with that in this Mm -hmm. new show called She-Hulk. Okay. So, Annalie, what is your, you um, have talked a lot about MCU stuff. You're pretty well versed in it. Do you have specific relationship to She-Hulk? Did you read the comics? Um, Yeah, I yeah, no, I'm first of all, I am a huge Hulk fan going back to when I was a little kid. So I started with Hulk Hulk, um, the OG Hulk, um, always strongly identified with um, that feeling of being a person who at any minute could turn into like a giant green angry <laughs> baby. Um, and I think a lot of kids identified with that. And I started reading She-Hulk comics um, in, I guess, the mid-aughts, the early aughts, and I was working at uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a legal defense fund that deals with um, digital rights issues, and um, you can find them at EFF.org. They're still going strong. And so I was working with a ton of civil liberties lawyers, and we were all obsessed with She-Hulk at that time. And the comics um, in that era were very much in keeping with a lot of the show's themes of, um, you know, reframing what it means to be the Hulk for a professional woman. Because, of course, the thing with Bruce Banner, um, the OG Hulk, is that he's kind of at war with a force within himself, this this rage that he can't control. So he's like a man fighting himself. Whereas She-Hulk is always kind of in conflict with forces outside of her that project their ideas of who she Mm. should be onto her. And she isn't using her hulky side to express anger. Um, She's she's using it to get by at work, to um, put on this kind of 
uh, brave professional face. And so being Hulk allows her to get ahead in her job. It allows her to be sexy. And it's a really different kind of story. I mean, it's really a story about how women have to wear different faces as they go out into the world to protect themselves from other people's expectations. Whereas OG Hulk, like, that's not at all what he's dealing with. He's he's He has this internal struggle. So I loved how the show picked up on a lot of those themes of what does it mean to be a professional woman? How are people in the world perceiving you and depicting you online? Um, so yeah, I'm excited to hear what you think about it. Too. Yeah. Kat, do you have any, what's your relationship with MCU? She Hulky. Yeah. Hulk? I mean, I, I have, I have fully become baptized into the MCU, um, ever since going to Comic-Con 2007 and Jon Favreau debuting the trailer for Iron Man. And I was like, the fuck is this? I'm waiting for the super bad panel. Um, like, you know, like completely went from like zero interest in it to, um, eventually having caught enough of it that I wanted to catch up on it and fill in those gaps. Um, I was a, a really casual comic reader. My sister, my older sister was always really into comics. So I would read ones here and there that she recommended, but I didn't really like follow any weeklies. Um, so by the time this show came around, I knew, I mean, it's a foregone conclusion. I'm going to watch it. Um, So there is a lot, like, I'm interpreting this from the world of Kevin Feige, uh, mostly. And that's so interesting to think about, like, this isn't necessarily about the character on the page. This is about, like, the character that people want to think about or care about when it comes to Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk. Um, Although we are now pulling back in the Ed Norton movie. Um, And so, yeah, that was kind of interesting. Like even just thinking about, uh, obviously they they leaned into a little bit, but I was like, oh, it's it's She-Hulk. It's going to be silly. That's kind of what I knew going into it. It's going to be a little goofy. She-Hulk attorney at law, the bus ads that I saw going around. Um, And then one of the, probably the first like takeaways I had from the show of like, oh, this is, this is going to try to say something was that like Bruce Banner can come and go as he pleases. And he's been an Avenger now for 10 years or whatever. But Wong can just, you you know, get out of there. He doesn't have to like stay put for a conversation he doesn't want to have. But she has to stay on a date because that's what life is. Is like, I would, I would love to just get out of here, but I got to stay on this date or I have to be in this job interview or I have to wear this uncomfortable outfit. Whatever the thing is that's, frustrating like she can't just opt out of it because that's life and that was kind of starting to rear its head in the first episodes and i think we'll we'll get more into it as as the show itself got meatier and our conversation goes but like annalee as we briefly mentioned before we started recording there were moments where i was like so anita the (laughs) the um (laughs) the consultant credit like when is that going to show up at the end of a of an episode because uh where the story and the season takes us is really clever but it's also really real and like i'm i'm like i'm on the edge of my seat i want to know what you thought about it yeah i didn't um I've like, whatever. I watched all of the MCU stuff up through the Avengers, mo- most of it. Um, and then I kind of got like really over it. You know, I was like, I just, ugh. and then, you know, the 
pandemic and lockdown happened and then we weren't going to theaters and I was just like, I don't fucking care. And so, you know, I'd watch stuff here and there um, or I'd get bored and be like, I guess I'll watch this thing or we'll talk about it on the podcast or whatever. But it's not a given that I'm going to watch everything anymore like it kind of used to be. Um, and I know a lot of people are sort of in that that boat at this point. We're a little tired of it. We're like, who are these fucking superheroes that you're trotting out that like nobody gives a shit about? Um, and She-Hulk, uh, I it was a given that I was going to watch it only because I love Tatiana Maslany. I was like, I think that she is an incredible actor yeah. and just blew me away in Orphan Black. And she's also like a really lovely human, <laughs> like just a really kind, lovely human. And I was like, I will watch everything that she's in. So that's kind of where I came to it. Never read the comics, don't know anything about the story, uh, had no idea what the show was going to be about. That I literally was watching it for her, and that's it. Um, so it was interesting to watch it, like, because I'm like, oh, is this going to be a lawyer procedural? Because <laughs> I don't do not want to watch that. Like, I don't really like copaganda shows. I don't really like police procedurals or like legal procedurals, really. And I was just like, oh, this is going to be such a slog. And the the pacing of the season is fascinating because the first few episodes, you're, I, I was like, okay, yeah. I like, I'm going to, I'll, you know, it's not that long. I'm probably will finish this, blah, blah, blah. But then it like takes a turn and you're like, oh, I see what you're doing. This is interesting. Right. And it all comes to a head in the last episode. So that was kind of my background as I came into this knowing nothing. Like I didn't even know that the fourth wall breaking thing was from the comics. I thought that was just a creative choice that the writers chose to, to do. So, um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my, like, I started just being like, this is a little bit boring. Like I'm not super into this. Um, and, and, and then I was like, oh, I'm really into this suddenly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The pacing of She-Hulk was interesting and I have been watching all of these TV shows. Um, I was thinking about WandaVision as like the first one that we saw that, that really played with your expectations of like, you didn't know from one episode to the next, what kind of show you were going to get into, but that was the point of that show. Um, but for the most part, they've been pretty straightforward, linear storytelling. And this one, it's like half procedural and then half like turns in on itself. I don't know what y'all thought about that or in comparison to any of the other shows. Yeah, it felt <clears throat> in many ways like the opposite of WandaVision in that it was not slick. It was not high concept in in a kind of um, aesthetic way. It was a sitcom. And um, I loved that about it. I loved that it was just like, we're just a, it's a zany working girl sitcom with like sociopathic men online. And that's just what a working girl deals with these days, um, <clears throat> which is true. And I loved that it had little touches of darkness, um, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't the kind of WandaVision thing where it was like, oh, this is like really, really dark. Um, it was, it, it actually was embodying the sitcom that WandaVision was kind of making fun of or satirizing. Um, <clears throat> the other thing about it, though, was I did feel like it was uneven. I thought the pacing kind of blobbed around at various points, and I was like, okay, you know, is this just a zany procedural or are we going somewhere? I felt like we lost the thread in a couple of episodes. Um, but then it just came together so well mm -hmm. at the end. And um, I was curious what you guys thought about the fourth wall breaking, because one of the things that really irked me in 
watching the show was that I felt like they weren't Mm. doing it enough. Like every episode would have like a moment where, you know, she would turn to the camera where Jen would turn to the camera and kind of say something. And it often felt really abrupt and strange because it was like, wait, oh, right. We're in one of those fourth wall breaking shows, but we only get one per episode. And then the final episode was just like off the charts amazing with breaking the fourth wall and like literally going to visit like Marvel Studios and and talking to the boss about like how the show was being written. Um, and I kind of just wanted more of that. Like I wanted more of the voiciness um, that that felt like it was missing in some of the episodes. Yeah, I um, we were all nodding in like aggressive agreement when you said that it, the pacing was uneven because uh, I really feel that I agree with you. And I do think that I really like that it's not this like we're going to deal with trauma mm-hmm. like like the MCU has just been aggressively like we're going to talk about trauma all the time but not really talk about trauma in any real way or deal with it in any real way you know like it's just it's been it's felt mm-hmm. really surface and just bullshit to me and so I like that this wasn't that you know um it was written by um a writers room I think majority or definitely like a, a large population of the writers uh, were sitcom writers. And so that mm-hmm. kind of explains the the direction and from the beginning of what they were thinking. The fourth wall breaking stuff at the beginning, I was like, I don't know. This is weird. Uh, and I think it, again, like the end really comes together. And so the way they use it at the end, I think is really well done. And there's a question for me of like, did they, is it always going to feel weird in the setup? Um, and they needed to do all this setup to be able to get to that point. But but thinking about something like Fleabag that does fourth wall breaking instantly great. Yeah. You know, like they were able to mm-hmm. nail that. So, you know, it is possible to have that kind of interaction uh, with the audience in a way that I think works a little bit better than it did at the beginning of this. But I liked where it ended up. And it's Im- impossible not yeah. to think about Fleabag by comparison. And you know, maybe this was something as I read when I was trying to research that like this is intro- this fourth wall break was introduced like almost 10 years into the comic run. And as far as I understand, that was fairly un- an unusual tactic in comics. And now this is something we're used to. We have seen people either break the fourth wall or like do the kind of mockumentary, uh, you know, talking heads thing. And there's something about like Fleabag starts with it. It starts and it pushes it into the story so strongly. And I think it's the first episode of She-Hulk where the really kind of uh, wink, wink moment, post-credits moment happens where they talk about Captain America's sex life, right? And this is like something people have been debating online for years. And it's like very kind of funny, like, oh, even people in this world would be having this conversation. And I think like that was maybe a missed opportunity. Like that could have been the way to introduce like, I'm here with you and we're kind of in on this together Um, in general. And it's like the it stuck the landing so well. I had a couple of like, I still don't really get what Titania was all about, but in general, I was just like, this isn't, this is nice. This is a fun show until, I mean, I'm, I'm a Daredevil fan too. So when Daredevil showed up, I was really, I thought it was great. I was so excited about it. Um, but so then like, once it starts to kind of have a thread, I was way more interested in it. Um, 
in general, I was like, okay, I do watch a lot of crappy procedurals. So like, I'm on board if this is going to be like a fun lawyer show, but it wasn't like the best lawyer show you could watch. Um, So I kept kind of waiting for payoff because I was like, Renee Elise Goldsberry. Oh my God, she's so good. Not getting much from her. The guy who plays Lance on the other two, who's amazing, Josh Segarra. I was like, yes, more of him. And it just kind of didn't really go anywhere until it starts to, until the issues in her, like the personal life stuff starts to really um, gain momentum. And that, I think they could have seeded earlier, especially because some of that fourth wall breaking was her saying, like, this isn't just going to be about Wong showing up. This isn't just going to be about Easter eggs. This is a lawyer show because I'm really proud to be a lawyer. But like, it could have done that a little, just a little more with with more strength, I think. And it would have probably like given us more of a tease of what we were about to get. Yeah. Kat, I wanted to pick up on something um, really interesting that you just said, which was um, how the fourth wall breaking happened in the first episode where they're talking about um, Captain mm-hmm. America's sex life. And it made me realize that a lot of this show, and particularly the fourth wall breaking stuff, is about mm. celebrity. And that this is a show that <clears throat> deals with superheroes as celebrities as opposed to some of the other Marvel shows which have tried to kind of get a little bit meta about the superheroes but they've always treated the superheroes as kind of um, political figures like people who are um, you know causing damage in cities and so now we have to clean up and like how are they interacting with um, you know politicians or like the UN or whatever Um, and so that I think that would have been the way to go. Like, I feel like that's how the show ends, where we, like, realize this is a TV show and we're talking about how TV shows are put together. And, like, I would have liked more of that, like, more fourth wall breaking all along that's winking at us about how these characters are, like, Instagram influencers, basically. And I think that's where um, Titania came in, right? Like, she was the figure that was going to let us have that story. But, yeah, it kind of fizzled, like... Partly she was, like, just a person that um, She-Hulk could fight. But then there was also this whole thing of, like, um, trademark violation. I don't know. Like, it was, yeah. So that is episode five. And for me, that's when the show turned. Mm -hmm. Is that, for me, it was when, I like, I was having vocal reactions to the show in that episode. And from there on, I think I was much more like, okay, what's happening now? What's going on? And that was the episode um, where... Titania takes the name She-Hulk and then like sues her for trademark infringement. And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. Like just the way that they did all of it. I was like, I've been to these events. I've seen these events. This is how they play out. And it's exactly what would happen. And I thought it was just like, oh, we're like, this is when the show started. When I realized the show was much more meta commentary on society, on culture, on superhero stuff, on television writing, you know, the whole thing. And, and like, it's a bummer that it was like halfway, more than halfway yeah. through the season that it got there. And that's right? when it started to pay off too. like, I, don't call me that or that's not my name. And then the way that she had used it in dating and like how that absolutely like that's just something you could kind of look at the spectrum of people who were like, I wanted to change my name when I got married, but I'd been published. Like there are like all these ways in which like women do have to kind of navigate or people who 
change their names for personal professional reasons. It's like, now what? Um, that I feel like is, it's just, it brings it to a sense of reality that I think is what makes like the growing MCU so much more interesting to me than the DC superhero stuff. <laughs> it's like, and well, I really didn't care for Moon Knight and it was hard because it was just really hard for me to find a connection to the, to this story. I was like, this should be cool. Like the world of Egyptian gods is like awesome. Right. But I'm lost by these people because they're not feeling like real people to me. I really appreciated the commentary about how the name She-Hulk is stupid, <laughs> right? That they're like, we're stuck with this. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to do a, like, we know what's going on here. Right. The sort of, uh, you know, like we we can't do anything about this, and we're gonna let you know that we can't do anything about this. And then having an episode where she's just like, "Well, but now I have to internalize this thing and be like, it's mine now, and it has all of these complications, and nothing is easy in life." And so, just that, I like that complication. I thought was really smart yeah. and like you know, and and interesting in a way that like you we couldn't have had if you didn't come with the baggage of a fucked up sexist name, right? Um. Yeah, it was super well done. And it really was kind of walking that line of showing how she hated the name, but then she finally had to own the name to take power. But of course, the name is inherently disempowering. So it's it's just absolutely like feminist celebrity in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and really thinking about like the the scope of this world, this this whole MCU starts with a billionaire warmonger declaring i am iron man <laughs> call me mm-hmm. by my name <laughs> like i am iron man <laughs> it's printed on the side like my 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 christian name is printed on the side of that missile over there but like this is who i am and um that whole celebrity thing is uh really interesting like so i i have been watching the uh netflix marvel series and i haven't watched all of them but they're they're regional like that's the thing that most of this takes place in new york but they are in smaller communities and so i think it's really interesting also that this is a like focused on a woman in her 30s so i really liked hawkeye and ms marvel which are based on ms marvel's a teenager and um young hawkeye she's what 1920 like she's in college age and they mm-hmm. have this hero worship of their superheroes that is absolutely right for teenagers. Like, it's so spot on that they would go to fan conventions or they would idolize these people based on, like, a really genuine belief that, like, they are the ones who are saving the planet. And we get to, like, a woman in her 30s and she's like, ah, oh, my fucking cousin. Yeah, he's he's good. He's a nice guy. Like, all these people are just people and I've met enough assholes in my life at this time, like not to really lionize anybody. And that was awesome. <laughs> and, and Tatiana Maslany, who can do anything, as we know, like there were such great moments and and like her physicality in this was really interesting because she's so petite. And that is, I think, by design, right, that obviously there's a big contrast, but like she looked so tightly wound all the time when she was not She-Hulk. And I I loved seeing that. I was like, I love seeing this sort of nervous, but like going to be strong when she needs to be person. I I thought Tim Roth's physicality was 
unbelievable. Just like the, like, because we're talking about like physical acting here, him as just like, like in his cell, just kind of <laughs> leaning back and being like answering these questions and the way he even like moves on his, um, in the like retreat compound. Like I just was so taken by how he presented the, 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 um, uh, Emil character, uh, especially in contrast to abomination. I just, uh, that stuck out to me in terms of performances on the show. But, um, so actually I'm going to, I want to talk about the retreat and then we'll talk about the thing that we all actually want to talk about. Um, I, so there's there episode seven is the retreat and Jen goes to visit the wellness retreat that Emil starts. And it's just all of these dudes sitting around talking about feelings. And at first I was like, Oh fuck, you're making fun of like the work that I do, right? <laughs> like accountability and like, you know, emotional openness and all this stuff. And I was like, Oh fuck, I hate when this happens. And then it like shifted and it like actually worked, you know, like I feel like they they stopped making fun of it and made it actually like a useful thing that helped Jen out and 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 like helped the growth of all of these people and their relationships and, and all that. And so I was like relieved that that scene and the episode ended on like a no, this is actually a good thing, even if it's a little hokey, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I think it gets contrasted with the sort of toxic incel culture that are, you know, that, um, what's the, what's the human name of her, of the guy who's Todd um, Phelps. Uh Yeah. Yeah, Todd Phelps. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, Hulk King, which I would just Um, like to say, I called that so early (laughs) as soon as we knew that there was somebody who was like pulling the strings. I just, I'm not great at this. So I was very proud of myself to be like, it's fucking this douchebag kid. That's like roaming around trying to get her blood or whatever. Oh God. Yeah. The, the whole, actually it was quite spot on. Like the name of his site being intelligentsia. I was like, yes, very, very spot on. Um, and and he is kind of the anti-therapy figure. You know, it's funny to have him contrasted with Abomination, who's also a bad guy, but he's kind of like an okay bad guy who's trying to, like, right. learn. Is, yeah. <laughs> is Emil Blonsky, like, the one example yeah. of, like, carceral rehabilitation? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Wait, so this is something about the show that's interesting, right? The the A very primary surface current of the show is just men are trash, right? (laughs) Like, and just the shit that women have to put up with uh, or or marginalized folks, femme people in general. And um, I think at first I was like, uh, fine. You know, like I've talked a lot on this podcast about how I get really tired of the like overwrought in your face kind of social justice kinds of language and conversations. Like it takes, it takes a real skill to be able to do that subtly in a way that, you're not like, oh, I'm being preached at right now. And the beginning of this show had a lot of that, right? Where it had mm-hmm. when Bruce and Jen were talking and she's like, I don't have rage issues because I have to deal with this every day. You're like, fuck yeah, totally. And also, uh, yeah, right. You know, like, I just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Or like incoming message. Yeah. yeah. And then like the <laughs> sort of street harassment, like, which I thought was funny, but she was like, oh, wait. I'm powerful, (laughs) which I thought was funny. But Mm -hmm. again, it was just like there was a lot of like little comments here and there about about it in a way that felt like and then we're going to talk about the thing. I thought as the show got more confident in itself, we saw it manifest in ways that felt more sincere. The like when we meet um, Todd and 
she goes out on the dates with all of these dudes. Like that was a fucking hilarious sequence, right? Um, when the ribbit and rip it, the fucking leapfrog guy who's just like, I can be a superhero too, you know, like that shit. I think these were all like great examples of masculinity, um, you know, trying to be something, right? Yeah. Trying to be hegemonic masculinity, trying to be sort of these alpha male characters or whatever, which then manifests into intelligentsia and like the, the, the where the extreme to all of these things goes right yeah and i think the other thing that the show has going for it that kind of pulled it away from being a kind of like feminism 101 or whatever comes before 101 like feminism 40 <laughs> or something like that a, a, like a really introductory class um was the fact that it's very mm. class conscious um we immediately have like titania who's clearly like a rich girl who is, you know, used to, who just feels really entitled to everything, including She-Hulk's name. Um, and I feel like that's the other thing about Todd is that it's not just that he's a douchey guy, it's that he's this super rich guy who, again, feels like he's entitled to everything because he can buy it. Um, and then he's contrasted to other men who are more humble, um, who are able to, um you know, take orders from women, like work for women, like Pug. Pug was um, so great. And who, who can be like a team player and like, and also be a guy. And then, um, of course, uh, you know, when she uh, meets up with Daredevil, like that's a whole other um, way of looking at masculinity. So I feel like um, because the show is set in the milieu of lawyers who are like helping a lot of people who are rich, we get to have that other axis um, of looking at how power is distributed. Yeah. And even her, I mean, it, when I think about class in it, it is about like, well, these wealthy people, right. And access to wealth and at, like, you know, the fact that like she had to manipulate her way into getting into the designer yeah. So, you know which i'm like she's but she's a soup what like how did this fucking shitty leapfrog dude get a costume made by him and the he has a rich yeah, dad right? he's a client of the yeah um, but it's a, it is contrasted by while jen is like definitely not working class like she's a professional lawyer no. you know she still is yeah. a you know, and she has her family to support her but like she still needs a job and like her not having a job isn't just about her professional career. It's also about like, oh, I got to move back here with my parents now kind of energy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was part of what made it richer as it went along, what made the, the kind of um, looking at her position socially um, kind of more subtle than it might have been. Um, but also the fact that this is a show that's really aware of social media um as a menace um not just as like a thing that like kids do on their phones um and so yeah i really want to talk about that yeah yeah i just wanted to quickly say that that is something i think where there's a big contrast between these characters and like the avengers and the characters that are in the netflix marvel shows which are like we know daredevil is coming back we now have had um uh, kingpin in the hawkeye show but like Daredevil's a pro bono attorney in Hell's Kitchen and Luke Cage is, you know, just a guy. Like, there's a lot of that where it's like, oh, if somebody gets injured, you have to, like, hope you meet a nurse who can stitch you up in a back room. Whereas with the Avengers, there's always such, like, a every deus ex machina is possible because there's an, a never-ending 
invention and money and solutions here. Um, but yeah, even the fact that like, how is she hook going to wear shoes? Like what, you know, like something like that. What is she going to wear? And that was like, that was super important, especially as someone who in, immediately realizes she's going to be a public figure. And that's now cru- crucial. She cannot just wear whatever slouchy clothes Bruce Banner wears. She has to look good. Um, <laughs> yeah. She can't just wear yeah. his ripped up pants that just kind of half cover his butt. <laughs> um, so the social yeah, media, absolutely. the world of this, this, and it was also interesting as we get into it that like she isn't super aware of it. Like it's kind of her friends who are like, you got to get on a dating app or like, oh, I, I've been, I set up a Google alert for you on day one of this. And she's kind of like not, she has not opted in to this world. She has not chosen to become a public figure in the way that she does. I was actually, I was trying to remember if Ms. Marvel makes use of social media just to contrast it. Like, cause I do feel like in that show, just all the kids are using their phones all the time, but it's not like a plot point. They Am do I a little something? bit of, of using lives to get attention. So mm-hmm. like there's a that redhead girl who's a influencer of some sort. Like once she kind of joins mm-hmm. the gang, I think she's like live streams so that the agency won't like halt all of mm-hmm. the activity happening. There's like a little bit of that, but right. really they're... It is a little bit more of that old school, like, we're just here trying to build stuff above the convenience store and put inspiration boards on Mm -hmm. the wall. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think, like, obviously what ends up being interesting about She-Hulk in the second half of the season where it gets interesting is the fact that the biggest danger is not from another evil uh, supervillain. But it's from this mass of, like, faceless dudes who read Intelligentsia and um, Hulk King, or Todd, um, who runs it um, and is, of course, trying to become a Hulk himself. Um, it's There's so many interesting parts of this, um, but I do think that it comes back to something that I was saying at the beginning about how She-Hulk experiences her dual identity as something that's being imposed on her from outside um, and that that's something she's struggling with because she's constantly having this identity reflected back to her as something obscene. Um, Like when she's accepting her award and then the sex tape starts playing behind her and it's it's just, um, of course, Hulk, the OG Hulk, he's wrestling with people perceiving him as destructive but like not in the same way because you know it's like is destructive (laughs) you know like her he is like his the the reasons people are wrestling with his stuff is because of the things that he has done and so there is a like yeah he's literally she's wrestling with like (laughs) patriarchy and capitalism and you know like all of the systemic forces that are just amplified now as a hulk as a female Hulk, specifically. She's, she's wrestling with the fact that she wants to be a professional who's taken seriously in the workplace and also wants to get laid. And that's, like, that's literally what she's yeah. being punished for, is that she's sexual with this guy who she thinks is nice. And then, you know, that's turned, that's weaponized against her. 
Um, and I just don't think we see that very often with superheroes. Um, we see them wrestling, like I said, with kind of notoriety, but that's really different than wrestling with a public image. And um, I don't know, that was, again, why I really was curious to see what you thought about this, Anita, and whether you felt like it was, um, you know, like, if it was working for you as someone who has experienced a lot of, yeah. I, shall we say, a certain amount <laughs> of social media notoriety. Yeah. Um, I When she goes on dating apps, I was like, oh, God. Like, I was like, I would never do that. You know, like, just like, and especially being like going on as She-Hulk, I was like, no, why would you ever do that? That's dangerous. But but and then I was like, but it's also not dangerous for her in the same way mm. in terms of like physical safety that I feel around dating apps. Um, but you but but it has all these other types of safety concerns that get manifested here in terms of like the non um, non consensual um pornographic imagery that was released also known as revenge porn trying to get away from using that word Mm -hmm. um and the thing that really like so (laughs) the thing that actually really got me where i was like oh this might be too much uh which never happens to me when i'm watching shit was when they are when um todd he, he king hulk or whatever is on stage talking about she didn't earn it we need to take it away from her i was like like I literally like I got shallow breath a little bit being like holy fuck like they nail I think they really nailed the energy of the way that these men talk to each other um and I think it's important because we were talking about class that like class is not a barrier to being a part of these hate mobs right like there are people of all different Mm -hmm. class levels and backgrounds that are um that latch on to uh, these misogynist, white supremacist, um, transphobic hate movements for all kinds of reasons. Um, but I thought they did a really good job of showing that energy. And even and because it was so brief that I, I appreciated how they did it. And it felt very real to, to me, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, me too. And I think what, to briefly go back to the class thing, um, I think what was interesting was obviously Iron Man is being referenced and subtweeted in a sense throughout this show. Um, and, you know, Todd is, is like the new understanding mm. of Elon Musk in the Marvel universe. Um, when the I- first Iron Man movie came out, folks at Marvel talked about how they'd modeled the new, this sort of cinematic Iron Man on Elon Musk. Um, But as Elon Musk's identity has evolved, um, he's become more like a Todd. And so I thought it was kind of an interesting echo to be like, yeah, there's a billionaire leading this movement of people who are, as you say, coming from all class backgrounds, all kinds of um, reasons for joining, but they're still being um, led by this guy who has infinite resources. Yeah. I also, I just... um was this is not a good transition but the other thing i was just trying to make more sense of why i think that that scene worked so well for me and i think part of it is because as the viewer we understand the backstory and the context in which she hulk was created in which she suffered in which she has gone through her every day and so hearing the language of people who you know like the the rhetorical like massive holes in their arguments um 
around the fact that she didn't earn it. She didn't this and that, that it was like nepotism, blah, blah, blah. As if they're like, just the, there was, it was so easy. Um, not easy. I don't think writing TV shows is easy. Um, it, because we had all of that backstory, it was easier to be able to drop in a couple of sentences here and there that really illuminate just how fucking hypocritical these people are um, because we knew all this other stuff. And so they just needed to say, she didn't earn it. I deserve it. Which, what, like, you're like, why do you deserve this? I don't understand why you think that, right? It's just so immediately apparent. And as I think someone where the public doesn't see the backstory, right? Who doesn't know all the internal machinations of my life and just sees the public press coverage and the like the sort of hate mob language that there was something kind of satisfying to me to be like, no, but you see all of it now, right. you know, like you see her whole, her, her whole struggle. And this is not new by any stretch, but it's something that I think is very topical like this year is the notion of like, or last five, 10 years is like when you react, that becomes the the violence that people perceive. So like that that moment yes. in that um, penultimate episode at the very end, when she reacts to what has happened, that is what gets her placed in the cell. That's what gets all of these headlines. And what's then very clever about the like, big denouement that that isn't (laughs) is there is no there is no satisfying way to write uh, Todd on that stage with that straw man argument there's no counterpoint to it you cannot counterpoint those types of that type of language and you know we see that with people who speak out about their abuser we see that about like people who are whistleblowers about like this type, you know, this type of abuse in, uh, in an employ by an employer, they become the problem. And so what could be done? What could be done when he's saying all these things? Is she going to stand there and say, no, but you don't know, but here's this and this and this and all of this stuff. And if you only knew that it would, it would change your mind. We all know that's not true. So the fact that like, it kind of just breaks apart in that moment, I think it's really clever and make it, it was function. it was so startling because you're like oh my god the it broke my hold on i gotta like go back into the show like i just i think the way they did it was great and then like they didn't have to it's exactly what you're saying is they didn't even have to do that they just had to be like some quirky weird thing and then the kevin robot <laughs> was also fucking hilarious you know where you're just like yeah, we all have heard of him. We know that he like does the machinations behind the scenes about how to hold all this shit together, but then making it like this robot and her being like, J- can we just not maybe do this thing? And then it just, it just ends. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I was like, this is great. Like, I'm so here for this. And there's the the, the last kind of question mark in that ending. I, I f- feel like there's, there's Pug who we, who we love but I also feel like he's someone that if he weren't being fed those phrases um, in his earpiece when he goes in like undercover, he would never think to say those phrases. But he also might not even know like what are the gross phrases to say because he's he's not super aware of it. He's like he's a good guy. He's not somebody who's to- going around talking about being a good guy, but he's a good guy. And that said, he's still ignorant to all of the stuff that the women in his life or not in his life we're dealing with. 
And then Emil, who I feel like people couldn't, like on the internet, weren't so, so sure like what his place was in that last episode. I got the sense that he really just rented out part of his retreat space for these guys and does some public speaking to support his eight spouses. Um, but, or whatever. <laughs> there were like his numerous, soulmates? God. Soulmates. There were numerous <laughs> plot lines about that. that. But, um, so it did seem to me like he wasn't, uh, he was another kind of archetype of, of man, which is like, oh yeah, that all, that stuff can all go on. It doesn't affect me. I'll take I'll take their dollars. I mean, this show is very much about different archetypes of masculinity. Yeah. You know, and just the ways that women have to interact with them on a daily basis. And in in a variety of ways. And you have to change yourself. You have to, you know, not you have to completely adapt how you're going to present yourself, how you're going to speak, depending on the type of man that you're going to encounter. Yeah. And it's it's also different pictures of how men become complicit with these toxic memes, too. Like, some of the men are just like, what? I didn't even know these memes existed. Other guys, like Abomination, are like, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't really buy into them, but, like, if you're giving me money, like, all right, you know? And then other people are true believers, and it's kind of, yeah, it's, a, it's nice to see it laid out yeah. like that. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention Nikki Ramos, the best friend, uh, played by Ginger Gonzago, I think her name is. Um, she was delightful and had the best outfits. So stylish. And I just, and I just, like, she was definitely, yeah. like, the sidekick, but I felt like she brought a lot to that role in a way that, like, felt not so, not as dismissive as sidekicks tend to be. Um, so I just wanted to call her out because I didn't want her to get... And get lost in the and final my final note too is like the sexiest the mcu has gotten to date i mean like technically we had a sex scene in eternals but the fact that like <laughs> the fact that you know there's hot tension between daredevil and she hulk and she turns to camera or she talks to kevin she's like can i have more can i have another visit from that guy because that was really working for me <laughs> i was like all right like she got to have this wasn't, as you said, a show about like just terrible things happening to this woman to harden her and make her into a hero. It was like, yeah, also some cool stuff happened and she had good friends and good family. And it was like at the end, it felt very well rounded, like it had stuck the landing, but it did take take us half a season to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked the fact that ultimately, like you guys were sort of saying that um, the ending was about to sort of it sort of breaks apart and there's like no response to that we that we can do to Todd really, um, which I totally agree with. But I also feel like what the show was saying with with Kevin and with um, kind of entering the writer's room and and yelling at them and stuff was that there is a response to people like Todd and that's to write your own <laughs> fucking show. You know what I mean? Take it over, flip the script, like tell stories. I would love where- to write my own show. So can we like make that? Can we just do that? Yeah, let's hook let's up with like Kevin. Put that energy out into and, the yeah. world. <laughs> let's figure that out. <laughs> hey, hey what's up? Um, yeah, because I think, and I think, in a way, that's right. You know that this is a that this is a culture war, and the way to respond is like with your own stories about what women can do, and and to say, you know what, we're not going to have a scene where we beat each other over the head with sinks, which seems to always happen in DC movies. I'm sorry to bring that into the Marvel world, but, um, you know, maybe the ending can just be like, 
you know, she gets <laughs> laid. Like, why does it have, like, the ending could just be that and, like, and gets to have a job. And, like, that's great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, on that note of getting laid, we're going to take a break. <laughs> and we will be right back to share some freakouts. If you are enjoying our show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Your monthly or annual tax-deductible gift helps us keep the show running and on the air. By becoming a patron, you're supporting independent feminist media and a nonprofit that's working to end abuse in the games industry. Plus, patrons get a special bonus alongside each episode of the podcast. Of course, we know that not everyone has the means to financially support the show, so... Just taking a moment to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show can help new listeners find us. We appreciate your support in whatever way you can provide it. Now, back to the show. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us recently. Kat, what have you got? I just watched the all of the episodes that have aired to date of High School, which is a new series on Amazon Freebie or Freebie, Freebie. by Amazon. I've been watching, I've been rewatching all of Leverage and it's on Freebie. And so now the Freebie is stuck <laughs> in my head all the time. Yeah, it was a real <laughs> experience to like find Freebie and get into it, but... I, Which Freebie is IMDb TV, and they realized that that name doesn't work for anybody, and they rebranded themselves as Freebie in case anyone wanted that backstory. I, I'm thinking there maybe it's <laughs> it's it's on its way to the to Charizard. Like there's a next evolution that has to happen. But um, uh, High School is a show based on a book written by Tegan Quinn and Sarah Quinn, and has been created by Clea Duvall. And I. Uh, I believe there are going to be eight episodes. The first four are out at the time of this recording. And it was so wonderful to me. Um, Tegan and Sarah are probably like the band that I've loved the longest that are like still actually out and about (laughs) like being creators that I'm interested in and care about. Um, I remember I I must have burned their first CD for like everyone I knew. Um, And so to watch it, like, there's something that I think is done really well about showing high school in a not glamorous light, but not in a, like, oh, everything's so, like, dark and horrible kind of way. Just in a way that, like, yeah, you know, they they had these chunky wallet chains and their clothes didn't fit great. And people weren't, like, the cutest people on the planet. They were just little weirdos. And that felt so real to me about being a teenager. And so it really is like at this point, I've just been watching like a little family drama. Um, We haven't gotten into like their being musicians yet. Um, They're both kind of discovering their sexuality in these episodes, but it's not like, and here's an episode where somebody thinks about gay stuff. It's just like, (laughs) these are sisters who fight and who are going to a new school and their mom works really hard and their stepdad's a nice guy, but whatever. Like it's, uh, there's something I really am enjoying about it, but obviously I'm going into it as a huge Tegan and Sarah fan. So I'm also going yeah fucking tegan and sarah and clay duvall i was like this was like every lesbian's like 90s awakening (laughs) you know (laughs) 
You just gotta throw in some candy yeah, lang and you got it all. Um, <laughs> and maybe some bound. But they're and, but I'm a cheerleader. There you go. Like, That's the yeah. trifecta. Their mom is played by Kobe Smulders, Hello MCU. And there is a moment where she so she's like had her kids when she was like 22, and now they're teenagers, and she's gone back, she's going back to school to become a social worker. And there's a scene of her just driving to to work or school blasting Tori Amos and singing along. <gasps> yes. And I was like, thank you for giving the mom, like the the thankless role of like the mom in this show, like that moment where I was like, yeah, okay. What would Tegan and Sarah's cool, harried mom listen to in the car and scream along to? And it would be Tori Amos. Like something like that just felt so con- well considered. Even if it, I mean, maybe it was just a line in the book. Maybe it was like, our mom loved (laughs) Tori Amos. But something like that, I was like, you're giving me more than just like, you know, these famous people before they were famous. Like, um, so check it out. Uh, I'm only bummed that now I have to like watch one episode a week instead of just watching all four that are left. Uh, And no more binge life. Um, I'm going to go next because mine is about... Oh God, let's talk about gay stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So I watched a 2011 British film called Weekend. Uh, It's directed by Andrew Haig. And I loved it a lot. It is, um, I'm really loving these like moment in time, like time capsule moments of like short periods of time of people that aren't, extremely boring like i i think i texted carolyn for those of you who have been longtime listeners being like i watched a carol movie that wasn't slow and boring (laughs) and i really liked it (laughs) because carol loves this slice of life and i'm like i need a little bit more right and this was that it's about um two gay men who meet on a weekend and just spend almost all their time together and then one of them like it leaves for like is about to leave for like years um as they were like starting to be into each other and the tension comes from like one of the guys is kind of closeted and like is a little bit ashamed of being gay and the other guy is just like very open and very queer and like much more open to talking about like gay stuff you know (laughs) whatever is it set in Um, 2011 like it's it feels like it is of that time Um, it's not like this it's 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 not a time piece no 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 it's like contemporary (laughs) Mm -hmm. and think about like you know 2011 was still a time in the media where like queerness wasn't as um prevalent as it is now so it kind of makes sense that that film existed in that moment i think it would feel a little out of place in our contemporary not that we're like flooded with queer media, but there it's just a different, we're in a different place with how we talk about queerness in media. Um, it was just very sweet and I loved it. And there's the weirdest scene where they're doing a bunch of Coke and one of them, and they do this thing where they like blow Coke into each other's mouths. <laughs> and it's like, it's supposed to be sexy and also kind of cute, but also so weird. Cause why would you ever want Coke blown into your <laughs> mouth? So it's just like little things like that. And then like just having the scene of them being like super coked out and talking about everything that's ever happened in their whole lives to each other. You know, like, I was like, Oh, I love this so much. So I thought it was very sweet. Um, it's called weekend from 2011. Have you seen duck butter? No, I. Uh- yeah, That's a good it's name. a movie with, um, <laughs> oh gosh, what's her name? Maybe from Arrested Development. Mm. Um, but it's, 
must be inspired by this movie. Uh, it is two women who made it oil can Harry's RIP to that bar and um, just spend like 24 hours together. It's like that kind of movie. But I think it's one of those, it's a little more like, I think they say we're going to have sex every hour or something like there's some setup that falls apart, but um, it's a great like queer talky sexy movie nice that's awesome all right annalee you've got some sex to talk about (laughs) i do i have some vampire sex to talk about gay vampire sex um so i have been watching the new interview with the vampire series which is on amc um there's only been three episodes so far but it's already been renewed for second season so we know we're going to be getting lots and lots Um, I was a fan of Interview with the Vampire, the novel, um, which came out in the 70s. Um, I didn't read it in the 70s, but um, when I was uh, a youth, um, I was very excited about the implied gayness in that novel, which um, in the show is very explicit. And there's a couple things that are super cool about this show, which, as the title suggests, is about a vampire, a couple of vampires. Um... So the novel is set like a lot of Anne Rice's novels in New Orleans, and it is, um, it's an antebellum novel, so it's before the Civil War, and the main character, Louis, um, or Louis, because of course they're French, um, sort of, <laughs> um, he's a plantation owner, and so there's a lot of really... Um, super weird uh, politics around race in that book. And what the TV show has done, or what the what the showrunner and the writers have done, is they've brought the show up to the 1920s in New Orleans, which is, of course, an awesome time. It's uh, delightful costumes and everything. And they've made Louis a um, person of color, a mixed-race um, guy who is played by um, Jacob Anderson, who played Grey Worm in um, uh, Game of Thrones. He's like smoking hot and smoldery as hell. And he's great in this role. Although I have to say um, that one of the things that is super wonderful about the show is that it is incredibly (laughs) cheesy. And um, so we follow um, Louis, who is a businessman, he runs a brothel, and I think he has a couple of other businesses, too. And he's dealing with, um, you know, the city politics where he's, like, the only black guy in the room most of the time. Um, he's certainly the only black businessman in the room, and he's dealing with having to, you know, pay off a bunch of white guys who uh, run the town so that he can keep running his brothel. And um, he meets um, Lestat, the vampire, who is a white guy who shows up and is immediately like, dude, you're so hot. I'm going to turn you into a vampire. (laughs) Sorry, spoilers for what is clearly going to happen. And so they uh, start kind of hooking up. And um, there is like, you know, this is not really spoilers, like, but almost immediately, like in this, (laughs) there's this scene of them. um, like having floating blood sucking butt sex, which was like just delightful, but also as absolutely silly as that sounds. Like imagine how silly that is. It is that silly, but also lovely. 
And, um, you know, every scene has over-the-top acting. Um, unfortunately, although I do um, really, really love... Um, uh, although I do love Jacob Anderson, he has, like, five <laughs> different accents. Oh, this no, show. this is, like, fucking and, Keanu like, and the accident, Dracula. <laughs> yeah, he's so great. And it's, like, I don't want to, like... I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, he's trying to do, like, a 1920s New Orleans accent, and it is just slaloming all over the place. And then everybody else is doing other weird accents, and some of them are, like, kind of British, and some are kind of Southern, and some are kind of, like contemporary accents and it's just like contemporary american accents it is um really a giant plate of cheese and like no one makes any effort to try to do naturalistic <laughs> acting so everyone is just like my dog <laughs> like literally um louis um and it's like, it is definitely so bad it's good, but in such a rich, satisfying way. Beautiful costumes, lovely sex, um, total gayness everywhere. Um, you know, every conflict escalates, like, from 1 <laughs> to 900, like, pretty much instantly. Um, the melodrama is just fantastic. And so, and plus, like, you know, brothels and New Orleans. So I've really been enjoying it. And I wanted to note that... Um, uh, it's kind of mixing together two strands in Anne Rice's Evra. So she wrote this book called Feast of All Saints right after Interview with the Vampire, which is about, um, it's an antebellum New Orleans novel about the free people of color who lived in New Orleans. Um, and it's kind of, this is kind of a mashup of that with Interview with the Vampire. And as I was researching the this little bit for the show, I discovered that there was a movie made of Feast of All Saints in 2001, which I didn't even know. And, like, it has frickin' Pam Greer in it. It has, um, like, a ton. It has Eartha Kitt in it. It has Forrest Whitaker. What? It's like, how did I not know? It has James Earl Jones as, like, the voiceover guy. And I'm like... How did I not know about this movie? Um, but anyway, so check it out. Feast of All Saints from 2001. All right. Cool. It's out there. <laughs> I will be watching this show. I've actually never seen the yeah, movie. Yeah, I wasn't. You've never seen the movie? I only. Oh, the, the I Tom Cruise movie? I discovered it's literally about an interview oh, with a vampire. Like, it never occurred to me that there was an interview element. I was just like. <laughs> I was yeah, like, no, nope, there is. There <laughs> it is the least important part of the movie. But that just like. Uh, Right. You know, and, it's and, one of those like a word that you've seen, but you didn't know how to pronounce for decades. Like there was one of those moments. Yeah. But um, yeah, this looks good. In um, in the original, in the movie with C Tom Cruise, which please do not watch <laughs> it. There's no need to watch it. The interview takes place in San Francisco, but in the new movie, it's Eric Bogosian, who's the like podcaster, investigative journalist guy. And they're doing the interview mm. in Dubai. Um, where apparently vampires live. It's so. pretty hot there. I don't I know why like, vampires live there, but you know, that's okay. Choice. <laughs> I, mm, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, maybe easier yeah, to get I was, a visa I saw that this show was coming yeah. out and I was like, no. <laughs> and But now, but now, <laughs> maybe. I mean, I don't want to oversell it. Like, I want to make yeah, sure yeah, you yeah, all yeah. understand. This is cheesetacular. Yeah. And that is how it should be yeah. appreciated. No, it's a, it feels like an adequate setup, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. <laughs> Don't expect too much, more than just lots of <laughs> cheddar and brie kind of smushed on top of Perfect. each other. 
Well, that has been our first show of this little season. Thank you, Annalie, for joining us. Where can people learn more about you? You can find out about me at AnnalieNewitz.com, my website. You can check out my podcast, uh, which I co-host with Charlie Jane Anders, which is called Our Opinions Are Correct. That is also located at Our Opinions Are Correct. Dot com. And I have a novel coming out in January called The Terraformers, which you can pre-order anywhere. Pre-order books. It helps authors. It really, really does, especially if you order them from your local, friendly, independent bookstore. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and you can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on all the things. Uh, I... Uh, Yes, you don't necessarily know this yet, but I have a new show that is out currently on Nebula called That Time When, and you can find it on, I don't know what Nebula's website is, nebula.tv, I think. Linked in Um, the show notes. It's linked in the show notes. Thank you very much. Uh, I think it'll have been a few episodes are out by the time this airs, and we are going to do a whole episode of this show on the my new show, so... Stick around for that. I'm so excited. I get to watch it. I am Kat Spada, and you can find me at Kat underscore EX underscore Machina on Twitter. And be sure to follow Feminist Frequency at FemFreak. If you are a Patreon subscriber, thank you. We really appreciate that. And also stick around for the bonus episode with our special guest, Annalie Newitz. And if you like this show, please help other people find it. Subscribe, rate, and comment on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening. I'm definitely still here paying attention. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 